0: The story of Ernest Shackleton's voyage to Antarctica and his enduring legacy that followed is one of my favorite stories outside of the Bible. And yet the reason the story and his legacy endures is not simply because it was a harrowing adventure fraught with danger and near-death experiences, as extraordinary as it was, and it was, but listen, there are countless men and women we've never heard of who have endured great adventures and even greater trials. No, the reason Shackleton's legacy endures is because of what he did in the face of those trials and extraordinary adventures. More specifically, it was his relentless determination to save his men, all of them, in the face of the most unbelievably difficult circumstances when anyone else would have long since given up. It's that relentless pursuit of rescue for his men that continues to perpetuate his story and his legend to this day. And of course, I was reminded of it just this past week as researchers just announced the discovery of his long lost ship at the bottom of the sea in Antarctica, as you just saw in the video. Shackleton lost his ship, but not a single man from the day his great adventure began all the way through. It was 1913. While searching for crew members to accompany him on his quest to become the first man to cross Antarctica from sea to sea via the South Pole in what was named the Imperial Transatlantic Expedition that this British uh, explorer, Ernest Shackleton, reportedly took out an advertisement in the London Times that read, and I'm quoting, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, Constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success, Ernest Shackleton for Burlington Street. It doesn't seem like that would attract many takers, and yet later Carl Hopkins Elmore quoted Shackleton as saying that so overwhelming was the response to his appeal that it seemed as though all the men of Great Britain were determined to accompany him. And so from among them, Shackleton chose 26 of the best men for this epic adventure now chronicled in a wonderful book titled Endurance, which was the name of their ship. And I've talked to you about this story before, the true story of Shackleton and his, what became 27 crew members, 26 whom he chose and one stowaway, who sailed to the Antarctic in 1914, where after five months of making their way south, their ship became trapped in pack ice in the Weddell Sea off the coast of Antarctica. And because their ship was slowly being crushed by the ice, Shackleton and his men had to abandon the endurance and instead camp out on the ice flow, drifting aimlessly on broken ice on the open seas for the next 10 months. 10 months, helplessly floating on pack ice in one of the most inhospitable places on earth. It is a story of survival unlike any other, not only eating penguins and seals to stay alive. At one point, the crew was attacked by a sea leopard, which was ultimately shot and killed. And after cutting the sea leopard open, the crew uh, found its stomach full of undigested fish, which provided what they described as one of the most delicious meals of the entire journey. These were men cut from a different cloth led by a man who was undauntedly determined not only to survive, but to save every last man. And so after more than a year lost at sea, Shackleton chose to risk his own life, taking two other men with him and leaving all the others sheltered on Elephant Island. And he sailed in a lifeboat 850 miles across the South Atlantic's heaviest seas in a lifeboat to a remote outpost on the island of South Georgia where not only were they discovered and rescued, but ultimately his entire crew, all 27 men, were rescued. One of his crew members later referred to Shackleton as the greatest leader that ever came on God's earth, bar none. When another crew member was interviewed after the entire ordeal was over, When asked how he compared Shackleton to the other most famous explorers of the time, namely Robert Falcon Scott and Roald Amundsen, the crew member replied, and I'm quoting, he said, for scientific leadership, give me Scott, for swift and efficient travel, Amundsen. But when you are in a hopeless situation where there seems no way out, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. As men go, there were and are few with the grit and determination and will to stay alive as strong as Ernest Shackleton and yet when you read his story it's not uh, it's hard to not believe that what drove him to overcome those seemingly hopeless circumstances even more than his own desire to stay alive was an even greater desire a relentless desire to save his men it was the heart of Christ in him, his willingness to risk his own life to save others that drove him to do what he did. And writing years later about his story, he told of the final harrowing march by himself and the two other crew members across the island of South Georgia where they were rescued, knowing that God was with them and ultimately responsible for that rescue. Shackleton wrote, when I look back at those days, I have no doubt that providence guided us not only across those snow fields, but the, across the storm white sea that separated Elephant Island from our landing place on South Georgia. I know that during the long and racking march of 36 hours over the unnamed mountains and glaciers of South Georgia, it seemed to me often that we were four, not three. I said nothing to my companions on the point, but afterwards, Worsley said to me, Boss, I had a curious feeling on the march that there was another person with us. Crean confessed to the same idea. One feels the dearth of human words, the roughness of mortal speech in trying to describe things intangible, but a record of our journeys would be incomplete without a reference to a subject very near to our hearts. Shackleton and his men understood that ultimately it was God's relentless working in their circumstances and in fact in them that kept them alive through the whole ordeal. Why? Why? So this story could be told so they could tell others who would tell others who would tell others about God's relentless pursuit of his people. It's the reason you and I are here. To tell everyone we can about God's relentless pursuit of you in your own life. His pursuit that ultimately rescued you so you could tell others about what he did for you. You're here to tell that story so that others will understand that without Jesus Christ, your family and your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors and the people you encounter every day who do not yet know Jesus will not make it because there's absolutely no other hope for this world other than Jesus Christ, which means, as we saw in the last chapter, the most most hate-filled offense that we could ever commit against another human being is to be indifferent about sharing the gospel with them. Right? The apostle John said if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen, 1 John four twenty. Listen, to know the truth and yet to withhold the truth is the epitome of hatred. We cannot say we love God while being indifferent about sharing the gospel with those who are lost. Think of it this way if you were walking around in the city with your daughter or your son, and somehow you became separated from that child. Just think about the sense of panic, the sense of urgency and dread that you would feel as the minutes tick by while you frantically try to find your daughter or your son, and then the minutes turn to hours, and the hours turn to days, and the days turn to weeks, and the weeks turn to months, and the months turn to years. I wonder, At what point would you become indifferent about rescuing your lost child? At what point would you quit caring if they were found or not? You don't have to respond because you and I both know the answer to that question. It's never... Till the day you died you would search for that lost child. In fact, it would consume your very life. You would never give up on trying to rescue that daughter or that son, right? You understand that's exactly how Jesus feels about every single lost soul on this planet and it's exactly how we're supposed to feel about the lost souls we encounter every day. Yet we we go through our daily routines so often indifferent about all those around us who are lost and dying and going to hell. We're more worried about what we're having for lunch than we are about the soul of the waiter or waitress who's serving it to us. We're more concerned about people's understanding of politics than we are about their understanding of the gospel. We spend far more time serving ourselves than we do sharing Jesus with others. Let's just be real. Where is our passion for the lost? Where's the urgency Where's the panic? Where is the dread over every lost soul that is waiting to be rescued? And why aren't we doing everything that we can to lead them to the rescuer? Because the heart of Christ is to save the lost, to relentlessly pursue those whom he's called to himself from before the foundations of the world. We're going to see that in our story today as we continue our sermon series working our way through Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome where Paul continues his treatise on God's relentless pursuit of his people. The fact, listen, that there is no depth of hopelessness we can sink to. There's no distance from God we can create. There is no overwhelmingly difficult circumstances we may ever face where his love and grace and salvation cannot reach us. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time and see just how far God is willing to go for you. Romans chapter 11, we'll begin with the first 10 verses. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what, scripture, what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So Paul has spent the previous two chapters addressing the problem of the Jews rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and the implications of that rejection for their own salvation and yet interestingly here he insists that while Israel may have rejected God's gift of salvation in Christ God has not rejected Israel in return that in fact despite present appearances Israel still plays a role in God's plan of salvation and that his promises to Israel have not been invalidated however it's important to understand that none of that has ever meant that the entire nation of Israel would be saved. Okay, Paul is not saying or even implying here that the whole nation of Israel will be saved because he immediately goes on to reference the faithful remnant of Israelites in the time of Elijah. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. The fact is the majority of Israel failed to believe. But Paul presents a faithful minority of Israelites in the past and then himself in the present as examples of the remnant that has been preserved, a remnant that proves that God is not finished with Israel and that he will fulfill the promises made to his chosen people. Paul says, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, if anybody's an Israelite, it's me. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew, right? He's including himself in that comment. 19th century Swiss theologian, Frederick Godet, speaking on the same subject, refers to the indestructible existence of a believing remnant at all periods of their history. While Martin Luther described Paul as someone who had opposed God with all his might so that if anyone would be cast off, it would be he, it would be Paul. Therefore, his existence as a Christian proves that God has not rejected his people. It's the same argument Paul is making here as he goes on to quote Deuteronomy 29.4 and Isaiah 29.10 and Isaiah 6.9, each one a commentary on the Israelites' failure to recognize God's working among them. And yet Paul says, despite the fact that the majority of Israel has rejected Christ, God preserves his people, those who remain faithful. Okay, all throughout biblical scripture, we find God preserving the faithful remnant of his people and he's still at it today. But listen, to be counted among the faithful remnant of God's people, you have to be faithful, right? Which isn't always easy to do. In fact, it's rarely easy to do. Otherwise, everyone would be doing it. Because look, every single believer has a moment in their life or rather many moments when we must choose to take a stand for Christ or to go along with this world. And listen, if if seeing God's ultimate purposes for your life realized in your life is what you desire more than what this world has to offer you, then you're going at times in your life to have to take a stand for Christ in the face of opposition. It's a fact. Okay, there's no version of this life where you can simply coast through never having to make any tough decisions for God. Never having to take a stand in the face of ridicule or persecution or even loss and come out victorious for Christ. You cannot realize all the potential he has spun into your DNA when you are being knit together in your mother's womb without experiencing hardship along the way. It just isn't a reality. Okay, listen, there is no comfortable way to become all that God created you to be. Sorry. Sorry. There's no comfortable way to become all that God created you to be. There's no easy way to get there. There will always be hardship along the way. Every single character in the Bible who achieved something great for God, every one of them that lived a life worth writing about, a life that could be used to teach millions of people after them, every single one of them at one point or another had to take a stand for God in the face of great opposition or pain or loss. Noah, Abraham, joseph moses joshua david rahab ruth elijah daniel the disciples the apostle paul right there isn't time to name them all and yet what they all had in common is that every one of them took a stand for god when it cost them something and every one of them as a result changed the world We simply cannot expect to have any great effect on our world for Christ if we're not willing to take a stand for him when that moment arrives. And it's going to arrive if it hasn't for you already. That moment when taking a stand for Christ costs you something. Okay, God always allows the spiritual metal of his people to be tested in this world for our good and for his glory. And listen, the responsibilities uh, we're given the ministry we're entrusted with, the effectiveness that we uh, have in all of that largely depends on our response in those times of testing, right? If Noah hadn't built the ark, right? If Abraham hadn't offered Isaac to be sacrificed, if Paul hadn't responded to the voice of the Lord on the road to Damascus, I think this world would look very different than it does now, right? And I'll just tell you, I want to live a life worth writing about. Don't you, I mean, don't you want to make a difference? Don't you want to have an impact, turn at least a part of this world toward Christ? I I do, yet that's going to mean taking a stand for Christ at times when doing so is going to cost you, okay? There are always consequences to standing up for Christ. You you may be laughed at, disrespected, talked about, looked down upon, Uh, you could lose your job, your friends, your position, your influence, you might have to give up material things, money, possessions. I've experienced all of that just for deciding to follow Christ in my own life. Okay? There's always a cost associated with taking a stand for Christ. And listen, the time to reconcile that for yourself is before you find yourself in a situation where you have to choose whether or not to take that stand. In other words, don't wait until you're there facing those really tough circumstances that require you to choose the easy path or the Jesus path. Don't wait until you've reached that crossroads to decide whether or not to stand for Christ because it's much more difficult in the heat of the moment to have to decide whether or not you're going to follow Jesus into the unknown. So make that decision now. Well, things are easy so you can stick with that decision later when things are not so easy. Because if you won't stand for Christ in the good times, you'll never stand for him in the hard times. Look, here's the point of all that. When you decide to stand faithfully for Christ, no matter what comes your way, he will preserve you all the way through it. Because he's with you all the way through it. He said to Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you, Joshua 1.5. David said the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Psalm 37, 23 through 25. The author of Hebrews writes, He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews thirteen five. The apostle Paul said, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 9. Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, what? I am with you always to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. Every single one of those promises is for our lives on this earth because no matter what you may ever face in this world, God is with you and he will preserve you all the way through it as you stand faithfully for him listen because he wants to change this world through you the world is constantly changing and what causes the world to change is people but listen the people who change the world are never the ones who go along with the crowd never No, it's the people who are different, the people who swim against the current, the people who take a stand in the face of life's greatest challenges and adversity. Those are the people who change the world for Christ. Okay, God doesn't always deliver you from the storms of life, but he'll walk through every one of them with you. God preserves his people. Let's keep reading verses 11 through 24. So I ask you, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the doe offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Paul's been arguing that there's a faithful remnant of God's people who he has and will continue to preserve through the ages, but that also doesn't mean that the rest are lost forever. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. So, Paul actually makes a contrast between stumbling and falling here. As Scottish minister Matthew Black says, One may recover from a stumble. And the German theologian Cale Schmidt uh, describes a certain crescendo, he says, from stumbling to falling. For the one who stumbles may get up again, pull himself together and stand on his feet, or he may fall and lie on the ground. Falling as a possible result of stumbling is perhaps a figure for the eternal ruin which threatens to overtake the Jews through their stumbling. So, Paul suggests that many of these Jews, the chosen people of God, have stumbled rather than fallen, and that God has used their stumbling to bring salvation to the world. The word world, by the way, here, cosmos in the ancient Greek, is a reference to the Gentiles. And then he uses two illustrations to make the same point the first fruits and the root. Probably he's referring to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the saving promises that were given to them, that if the first fruits and root are consecrated to God, so too are the whole lump of dough and the branches, meaning the Jewish people as a whole, which is imagery that Paul borrows from Numbers 15, 17 through 21. And again, he's not saying that, he's not saying every single Jewish person will be saved. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, Paul says, and thus save some of them, right? So he's not saying that all the Jews will be saved, but certainly he does suggest that many, many more Jews will come to Christ through the ministry of the Gentiles. You see, it's a ministry of reconciliation of God's people back to God, where he grafts his chosen ones back in to the olive tree, which again is imagery that Paul borrows from Jeremiah 11 and Hosea 14. And in the process, Paul warns us not to become arrogant, right? When those among us stumble, because he says, listen, this can happen to any of us. So do not become proud, but fear, he says, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So Paul says, not only does God preserve his people, those who have remained faithful, but he says, God restores his people, those who have not been faithful, those who have stumbled and need to be restored back to God. And honestly, this shouldn't be that hard for all of us. He's talking about the Jews, but it applies to us just as well, the principle, because we are all, every one of us at times in our lives, Broken people, right? We all stumble and fall short of the glory of God. The good news is at the cross, we find rest for the weary and healing for all who are broken. In fact, there's a pattern in scripture of God using broken people to accomplish his will and then bring them back to him. Not so much uh, those who had it all together, not too many who led impeccable lives. Rather, he routinely chose and still chooses to use men and women with all kinds of issues and hurt and brokenness Joseph was abused and rejected by his family Rahab was a prostitute David was an adulterer who murdered an innocent man Jonah tried to run from God Ruth and Naomi lost their husbands and were facing poverty and homelessness Peter denied Christ Martha worried about everything all the time and Paul had a physical ailment that never healed So much physical, spiritual, and emotional brokenness, and yet God used them all in amazing and powerful ways. You see, this is the God we serve. He's the God of the whole, and He's the God of the broken. So don't ever put an expiration date on your ability to be used by God. You hear me? Don't, don't ever put an expiration date on your ability to be used by God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews thirteen eight. So it's the same promises over and over again over thousands of years to each generation because God never changes and his promises never expire, which means you can come to him in all your brokenness and hurt, and the moment you turn all of that over to him, the moment you turn from the world, the source of hurt, and turn to Christ, the source of healing, in faith-filled repentance, real brokenness. He will restore your life and your relationship with him and the other people he's put in your life. And Listen, you don't have to have it all together first to do that. No, that's his job. Your job is simply to come back to him because he'll take you right where you are. And By the way, that doesn't mean that everything will instantly become the way you wish it would be. No, it means he will use you in spite of things not being perfect in your life. Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. And I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. 2 Corinthians twelve nine and 10. Again, in Philippians 4, 12 and 13, he writes, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul understood better than anyone that the best way to get things done was by the power and strength of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit living in him and working through him. So, so okay, do you have to be in a constant state of brokenness then in order for God to use you? No. No, absolutely not. Paul said, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. God doesn't desire for you to exist in a perpetual state of brokenness by any means, but he does want us to learn that the strength in which we accomplish his will most effectively is always his strength, not ours. So the really great news for us in that is the fact that because we rely on his strength and not our own, we can still be used by God in amazing ways even when we don't have it all together in our lives, even when there's brokenness there. The point is to bring it to him because it's okay to be broken, but it's, it's not okay to stay that way. And he doesn't want you to stay that way. He wants to restore what has been broken, but look, you have to let him. I read a quote the other day, it said, life happens, tears get shed, hearts get broken, but God restores. Let's finish the story for today, verse 25 to the end of the chapter. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So in the conclusion of this chapter, this portion of the letter, Paul discloses a mystery to the Gentiles to prevent them from being proud. The word mystery here, mysterion, uh, in the Greek, is not so much referring to something puzzling or uh, difficult to grasp rather it's something that was previously hidden that's now being revealed and it has three elements at this uh, time in salvation history the, the majority of Israel has been hardened uh, Two, during this same time the full number of Gentiles who have been called by God are being saved and three God is doing a new work in the future in which he will save as Paul puts it all Israel. Okay, but again, all Israel doesn't necessarily refer to every single Jewish person. It does, however, refer to a very large number, even uh, the majority of Jews, when, as Paul quotes Isaiah 59, 20, and 21, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The Deliverer, of course, being Jesus Christ, suggesting that this... uh, what sounds to be a large scale salvation event for the Jews will occur at or near the second coming of Christ. And then he adds, as regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. In other words, the unbelief of Israel has benefited the Gentiles. And so this is the period of history in which the Gentiles are being saved while most of Israel remains in unbelief. And yet at the same time, by God's promise given to their forefathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, through this ministry to the Gentiles, he's bringing salvation to the lost, ultimately including to the Jews. So not only does God preserve his people, those who've been faithful, and not only does God restore his people, those who have not been faithful, but listen, God pursues his people, those who are still lost. You understand, there are people all around us in this world who are God's people. They just don't know it yet because no one has introduced them to him. And that was all of us once, right? Before Christ in our own lives, our situation was hopeless. Without Jesus Christ in our lives, we were ultimately doomed for failure and destruction. In John 15, 1 through 6, Jesus said, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And burned. Now, look, to someone who's not a believer, this can easily seem like an extraordinarily arrogant statement. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away into the fire and burned. Right? If this was all that we knew about Jesus, we could easily write him off as some kind of demented megalomaniac like a a world-class nutcase completely consumed by his own ego and of course there are people who view Jesus in that light but once you've submitted your life to him You've placed your faith and trust in him. You not only realize that what he said about himself and what scripture says about him from Genesis to Revelation, that it's all true, but even beyond that, when that word is confirmed in you by the spirit of the living God that dwells within you, once you place your faith in him, then all of a sudden these words, this statement by Jesus that we're nothing without him, it takes on an entirely different perspective because not too long after he makes this statement, he allows himself to be brutally tortured and murdered for you and me. It is in fact the most humble, passionate, selfless, and loving act that anyone could ever submit themselves to for the sake of someone else. And in that sacrifice, we realize that Jesus' statements to his followers, to us, were not born out of arrogance and ego, but rather are an impassioned plea born out of love and compassion because he desires that no one be cast into eternal darkness and flame. The only way, listen, the only way to experience true freedom, true love, true peace, fulfillment, happiness, forgiveness is to be reconciled to our creator by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ when we submit our lives to him. There simply is no other way. And, of course, Jesus knew that and was determined to make sure that we knew it. So he pursued a relationship with us to the point of his own death that you and I, uh, the lost people around us, might be saved. And clearly that's what he intends to do through you and me, to continue saving his people even though uh, those who don't know yet that they are his people. So don't ever put an expiration date on your ability to be used by God. Okay, as a believer and follower of Christ, it's your job to point other people to Jesus Christ, and although that's not always the easiest thing to do, it's always the right thing to do. And at times, it's gonna cost you something. Why? Well, because not everyone wants to hear it, right? As good as the good news of the gospel is, there are parts of it that are hard to hear. Take up your cross daily die to yourself repent of your sin renounce all that you have count it all as rubbish that you might gain Christ lay your life down for others oh and by the way there's absolutely no other way to be saved from the wrath of God that you and I deserve than to submit your entire life to Jesus Christ alone I mean for someone who's lost that's not always easy to hear which is exactly why the Spirit of God pursues us, draws us to Jesus and his gospel because we'd never accept it on our own. We must be drawn to it by him. Now that part, that that part is his job. Your job is simply to deliver the message, to offer the love of Christ and the truth of Christ to lost people. After that, how they respond to that message, well, that is not your burden to bear. I was having dinner one time with a group of people, some of whom I'd never met before. And in the course of that meal, one of those people I'd never met, a very successful uh, woman, asked me what I did for a living. And I said, I'm a pastor of a local church. She looked at me very inquisitively. And after explaining that she wasn't a particularly religious person, she asked me, what exactly does that job entail? Like, what is it you actually do every day? And so I said, well, if I'm doing it right, then I'm making disciples of Jesus Christ and teaching other people how to do the same. And she said, okay, well, how do you make disciples of Jesus Christ? And I said, well, by telling them about him, teaching them what he taught. And she said, okay, well, how do you do that? And so I explained that I did that in large part by teaching the Bible, because the Bible is God's words to us, written down in three different languages by 40 different authors and 66 different books and three different continents spanning across 1,500 years of different cultures, different circumstances, different people groups, all with the same message that God is trying to tell us. She said to me, that's interesting. And then she leaned in and with a bit of hardness in her eyes, she asked, So what is it God is trying to tell me? And I looked into the eyes of that broken and lost soul and with every ounce of compassion in me, I said to her, God is trying to tell you that he loves you. And before I could say another word, Before I could tell her about Jesus Christ, before I could even get any of the hard stuff out, she turned away in her seat, and just like that, the conversation was over. There will always be people who reject the truth about Jesus Christ, no matter how. It is presented to them, even when you try to dress it up and make it more socially acceptable. Listen, at the end of the day, you cannot make Jesus more acceptable to those who reject him by trying to make him look more like whatever you think it is they want to hear. In fact, listen, the more you change the message of Christ to suit the masses, the more they will demand you change it even further. That's a fact, it's exactly what's happening in our culture today, but look, when you start changing the parts of the gospel you don't like to better suit your personal preferences, you're no longer following Jesus, you're following yourself. So don't give in to that temptation because there are human souls without Christ all around us eternally damned to hell by the wrath of God. They may not have died a physical death yet but the sentence of hell is hanging over their heads like a guillotine ready to drop and their only hope for salvation is the gospel. So why would we keep it from them? God help us if we're more concerned about people's feelings than we are about their souls. God relentlessly pursues his people who are spiritually lost and he does that through you. That's your job. To share the love of Christ and the truth of Christ with people who have never experienced either. Listen, what they do or don't do with that message, that is beyond your control. Your job is simply to share it, all of it, regardless of how they respond. So where is our passion for the lost? Where is the urgency? Where is the panic? Where is the dread over every lost soul that is waiting to be rescued? And why aren't we doing everything that we can to lead them to the rescuer? These are questions that should haunt our thoughts and burn in our hearts until something changes. Because there is no more time to waste Ernest Shackleton said death is a very small thing the smallest thing in the world I know that death scarcely weighs in the scale against a man's appointed task each one of us has been appointed a task to lead lost souls to the rescuer by telling them about Jesus that's why you're still here Yet we've only been given a fixed amount of days on this earth to do just that. Do you really want to waste even one of them chasing after something that you can't take with you anyway? A.W. Tozer once said, life is a short and fevered rehearsal for a concert we cannot stay to give. Just when we appear to have attained some proficiency, we're forced to lay our instruments down. There's simply not enough time to think, to become, to perform what the constitution of our natures indicates we're capable of. Listen, we don't have any more time to waste. Our lives on this earth are too short to be focused on ourselves while people around us are dying without Jesus Christ. He is relentlessly pursuing His people and the way He does that is through you and me. There must be an urgency, there must be a priority, there must be a primacy in our daily lives for those who are lost and in need of salvation because there is no more time to waste. Right, this is the story of what Jesus did for you. He pursued you, he restored you, he preserves you. It's the story of what Jesus did for you. Maybe it's time you shared that story with someone else. Let's pray.